So a little while back, a lot of you said to me, hey, Dave, why don't you start doing more long form, you know, a longer duration podcast where you bring people on, you don't even interview them, you just have a conversation with them, right? And believe me when I tell you, both Camden and I, we heard you. And so here's what we're going to be doing for this week we will be releasing a handful of extremely long form, I guess we could say conversations or episodes, if you will. Now, with that being said, I also feel like it's the appropriate time to do this simply because of the amount of disclosure that is seemingly coming around the corner. Doesn't mean that it's coming. Now, with that being said, I also want to mention one other thing too. Some of the episodes that we will be releasing this week, the long form episodes, some of them will be in its full form available publicly on YouTube for everybody to watch. Some of them will be cut in half. Half of it will be put on YouTube and the other half will be put on Patreon. Why do I say this? It's not for the money, guys. I want this information to be spread as far and wide as possible without anybody having to pay anything. However, I am on my second strike with YouTube. The first strike was total nonsense. I Unfortunately, I cannot risk getting another one without this whole show and this whole channel being shut down. And then if it gets shut down, I have a very hard time reaching a good majority or a good chunk of you. So the following conversation is an interview with Bruce R. Fenton, who is the author of Exogenesis and a handful of other books as well. I highly encourage all of you to watch this entire conversation. Why do I say that? I say that because he specifically talks about certain instances in which he personally experienced the suppression of mainstream media from outlets like Forbes and many others. In addition to him actually saying to other highly respected scientists, in the STEM community, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Hey, I would love for you to, uh, uh, you know, try to analyze my research and try to debunk it so that maybe you can find some loopholes in my work. And that's a great thing for anybody to say in any industry, in any business, and just in general, in life in general. You want to, to provide me with some constructive criticism? And guess what these scientists would say? They would either never respond back or they would say something like, oh, we're familiar with your work and still, again, never respond back. So these are the type of things we discuss. The entire interview or the entire conversation, excuse me, is in fact in this video. So I just want to make this very clear. Signing up for Patreon in this particular case will not get you more of this conversation. This is the full length conversation. With that being said, I would like for Bruce to speak for himself. I don't want to be putting words in his mouth. So without further ado, please enjoy. Cheers. Forward to this. All right. So, without further ado, I don't think uh, Mr. Fenton needs any introduction. But for just for those who don't know, he is the author of multiple books, from my understanding, particularly having to do with the origin of the human race, mixed in with extraterrestrial um, hybrid seeding and things like this. So, Bruce Fenton, thank you so much for coming on, sir. Yeah. No worries. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, the most. It's been an interesting couple of books for people are uh, the Forgotten Exodus, sorry, the Forgotten Exodus into Africa theory, which is uh, not alien related, but is human origins. And then the more recent Exogenesis Hybrid Humans, which obviously deep, deep dives into that side of it. So right. depending on someone's interest, you know, they can tackle it with or without aliens. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so if... Um... So let's just start this off by uh, by asking what motivated you to write particularly the most recent exogenesis book? Was there anything in particular, uh, an experience of yours or what what uh, made you say, OK, I want to put together another set of uh, a set of content here with regards to the, the potential origin of humans and extraterrestrials? 
Yeah, I mean, it was a bit funny, but it came out of um, a different project I was doing. I ended up involved with um, a sort of a, a lost, well, I think it's a lost thing, but certainly some mysterious megaliths that are in the Ecuadorian jungle. And I was, I was living in Ecuador for about five years. And early on in that period, I ended up connected with a group of sort of explorers that had discovered um, a very strange set of ruins in the Yanganatis jungle, which is for people not too familiar with Ecuador, um, that region is best known for the mis mysterious kind of missing gold of the Incas. It's said that they took the, the ransom for Atahualpa into that jungle and that it's somewhere in there hidden. But there's also a lot of, you know, those strange things in there, including this megalithic site. So it's a kind of, a, you know, it's a really interesting part of Ecuador. We ended up doing a hike in there to see these ruins and all sorts of artifacts and stuff. So longer backstory, but basically during the research process of that, I found a connection to a group of early uh, humans called the Lagoa Santa, whose main uh, region is down in Brazil at a place called Lagoa Santa. Uh, and these are known to be um, like an Australoid or Australasian Aboriginal type human looking at the skull morphology, you know, and the anatomy. Right. Now, they date back to their, the evidence of their presence in America dates back to about 50,000 years ago. So obviously that, you know, undermines the popular consensus of an arrival in the Americas around 15,000 years ago. So, I mean, there's a lot of other sites now that have been eating away at that model, um, suggesting that we have people there from 20,000, you know, 25,000. But there's everything that goes down to 50,000. Now, that then dovetailed for me because I wanted to understand how can you have Australian Aboriginals in the Americas? Right. Go under the reason out of Africa theory, right? Because that doesn't seem to make sense because we're supposed to have the populating of Eurasia is underway allegedly about 50,000 years ago from Africa. And the last places these people are supposed to reach are Australia and then the Americas, right? So, what the hell are they doing there 50,000 years ago? Okay, so that was a big question. So I ended up sort of deep diving that. And that's how the book, The Forgotten Sorry, Exodus. Uh, sorry, Bruce, re respectfully, before you go on, is there anything in public academia that is try that seems as though uh, there's some form of censorship or suppression, if you will, of the information that you've dug into? Well, yeah, definitely with the um, early origins in America, you know, the early humans in America, that's been um, very controversial. And there's scientists who've had their careers kind of destroyed in some cases, and particularly um, Virginia Steen McIntyre, who she was involved at a site in, in Mexico. Um, I can't remember the exact name, but they found evidence of early humans going back possibly a couple of hundred thousand years, right? So wow. Early, probably Homo erectus, but, but early humans. And then elsewhere at the blue the Bluefish Caves, there was evidence of humans 25,000 years ago. And the guy that investigated that, you know, he spent years and years being kind of dismissed and ridiculed. And, you know, so we've seen again and again this an ignoring of older sites as well. Right. You know, no, there was nobody there before 15,000 years. So your sites can't be real. You know, so that's, that mm. definitely was for a long time. Um, and it also, you know, I've had a problem with, you know, an article that was written about my work and it was published on Forbes, you know, which is massive. So, I mean, if you right. would have 
no doubt gone viral, you know, so talking about rewriting Reason Out of Africa. Um, within a few hours, that article was spiked from somewhere senior in Forbes and was deleted from the website. The journalist was told to never refer to me as a source again. So if people don't think that there's so cover-ups... Was, sorry, you know, just to confirm, the author or the, the, the gentleman or woman that published the article, were they subscribing or leaning towards your theories? And, and was this why there was such uh, controversy or... No. They, they took it as that they thought that it seemed like a, a theory of merit that was worth discussing. And, and from a journalistic point of view, they looked at it and seemed it was sensible. Um, in fact, the journalist himself is trained in anthropology. So, you know, he wow. wasn't coming at it as, as being someone who's ignorant to these subjects either, you know, right. So he judged it as being worth considering in, you know, the public view, but didn't give it in a way that, you know, he agreed with it, you know, pointed out in the article that obviously, it's not the accepted view and, and all the rest of it, um, but was told that, you know, you, you couldn't even use me as a source. And that, so he was quite, I think, quite astonished, really. And, I, you know, I've spoken to a fairly well-known senior anthropologist, um, Professor Hoops, who kind of suggested that he thought he may even know, you know, which of his colleagues suppressed that he had a feeling that he might know but you know he pointed out this was extraordinary because of course if something's published the way you deal with it is you refute it by replying to it right you don't refute it by deleting it right right if it's good to publish then it's good enough to have a discussion and also you should inform your readers why you've deleted something that you've published so none of that was done he said that's really bizarre. and how how how, re- how long ago was this or how recently uh, that was a couple of years back yeah um, so that I've had probably late 2016, 17, something like that. I'm thinking. But um, yeah, you know, it was, yeah, definitely um, very, very weird, that one, because within hours. Within I, I just hours, wanted to, right. I just wanted to say as well, too, I wanted to ask you this and also bring this up to my audience, who I'm sure will be listening or watching. Uh, I talk on the show all the time about how there is some sort of um, metaphorical suppression mechanism within the STEM community right? Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and within academia, would you say that you were suppressed by one of them, if you will? Because it seems as though they're all with regardless of the the industry or category, engineering, science, anthropology, they all seem to um, and when I mean they, again, those at the top of the academia levels that are responsible for which articles stay up, which, you know, uh, proposals or um, dissertations get published, things like this. Would you say you fell prey to that that form of suppression, if you will? Well, I, I suppose in some sense, I mean, certainly that there's um, a discomfort with the idea of challenging what I call sort of the dogma and the holy cows in some of these subjects. Obviously, reason out of Africa is a considered a fundamental um, hypothesis or, or established theory uh, in terms of human origins. So you're really coming against hardcore dogma there that people have built their careers on, you know, and that they're lecturing on every, you know, every day in universities. And there's people with things to, to lose from that, right? So I would say that, you know, the fact that it was suspicious that within, I think, a few days of that, a certain uh, anthropologist had become guest contributors to Forbes, who are also known for debunking um, conspiracy theories and stuff that suddenly that they were writing for Forbes. So, so not only I, did they suppress your article, they bring another guy on coincidentally around the same time that just it, by, by fluke counteracts what you're proposing. About three people who are known for debunking stuff. So I, I'm imagining that Forbes 
probably received complaint from these people and that then said that they should be providing a voice of rational doesn't does that as, as i imagine happening yeah. as as, a, as an author researcher as someone who's very interested in the topic obviously you've made a career out of it and very successfully uh would you would you say that's a sign that you're on the right path if you will well i mean i would take it as it's a sign that that people are nervous about the levels of certainty they have in their theories right because if you are confident in your work you would not worry about someone putting an article out there that challenged part of it, right? Because you could just reply and show where they're wrong. And if anything, humiliate them in public, right? right? Yeah. They look at how ridiculous this is. Look at all the evidence we've got stacked against us. That would, that would be the way you deal with it. So the fact that it was seen as important to suppress it and delete it, I really and keep in mind as well the kind of crazy things that we see out in the mainstream news, like even Forbes and everything. There's all sorts of stuff that's just bonkers, right? Right. Um, so a challenge, you know, a challenge to part of recent out Africa theory is not a bonkers article to have, you know, even if um, you don't agree with it. It's really not on a topic that's particularly extraordinary. So I think it says a lot that, that anyone would have thought that they needed to urgently delete that rather than just having people take a look see what they think and again it's not written by me so it's not um an eccentric or extraordinary piece you could say you know that um that this person has just put together about their own work this is you know a journalist asking me about my work he's written up an article right so he's obviously put it in a journalistic way where you know he's not saying he agrees with it he's just reporting on a model that's been argued if that's so problematic for consensus anthropology i think it shows that they feel that they're holding a weak hand right i see exactly what you're saying so yeah okay that, that makes a lot of sense the the next uh, thing i wanted to to sort of shift to a little bit particularly for my audience because i think they'd really really be intrigued to know is your different uh, i guess we could say perspectives or theories without revealing too much of of the book obviously um on the different races or the different evidence that you have found of potentially different um, humanoid figures over the past and, and through your research, have you found it to be the case where you, we have seen more uh, human looking, obviously humanoid, but human looking creatures or more so um, as we've seen with some cave drawings and what have you, what seem to be shorter, big headed, presumably gray looking creatures? Do, is there any um, conflation there or? Um, I should probably just very quickly clarify how, how this connected with the alien work. That's right. Just to sure, bring it back around. Please, because, please, please, yes. Um, so what came about from that was basically a, an understanding in the conventional science, although not in the papers that most people would be familiar with, but there's an understanding in the data itself that we link back to an origin in Australia. And that's, that's kind of how it dovetails, because then I... I ended up connecting with some researchers who were based in Australia um, and we collaborated on a book project, but, but it was through them that I became aware of a, a book that tackled this idea that not only were humans first in Australia, which is what I'd found in my work, but also that there'd been an intervention by an extraterrestrial um, intelligence in prehistory, which was part of this emergence of uh, humans or we'll say homo sapiens in australia and that, that's where they sort of dovetailed from my work in you know ecuador and the human origins and so into this alien kind of topic um and that's a book called 
Alcharinga when the first ancestors were created. So if people want to read that, it's a very extraordinary book, you know, very extraordinary stuff in there. The author says, you know, though she says, you know, it's what happened to her and what she believes, she's very clear at the end that she's not offering evidence that people should go away and believe what she believes, right? Because right. it's just an account of what happened to her, information that came to her through a contact experience about our origins and um, quite specific stuff. And I took that information and used it as, as a, basically as a kind of a map to find evidence of this being a real event. So I just wanted to link that back around so people understand why the two. Of course, yes, of course. Yeah, that's right. So yes, you want to know in terms of, Beings. I mean, you mean human beings early on, or alien beings? Sorry, just to clarify, what you're saying uh, extraterrestrial specifically. Uh, I mean, if possible, there's you know uh, evidence, at least from my research as well. Obviously, not as in depth as yours, but of you know um, humans a little bit larger than how we are now. Again, that could be the process of natural evolution, but seems unlikely. Uh, certain things like this, as we would refer to nowadays as the what they would call the Nordic-looking aliens, the ones that tend to look like you know uh, Homo sapiens from Eastern Europe. Uh, you know the the tall the tall whites if you will any evidence of of this throughout your uh because it seems as though you didn't look go into this saying okay i'm gonna look for alien evidence it seems as though you very much stumbled across this which is what i find quite intriguing it's not like you went out of your way to purposefully manifest connections that the connections were there when you started looking already well yeah and again you know i was using this as a roadmap you know i was connected to the story through synchronicities you know that led me to this work that this other person had i'd had my own experiences in my life you know i have seen strange things in the sky you know i've had um, shamanic experiences which suggest there are other intelligences and beings out there um, including alien beings you know so i've, I've had experiences that suggest to me that that's a reality um but you know it was this synchronistic connection that led me to this particular um body of work which was giving this detailed account of an intervention now in that there is a description of different beings you know that there's human-like beings that are tall elongated heads um kind of uh kind of off whitish bluish kind of color i mean maybe what people call tall whites but again um so that's sort of grayish bluish kind of yeah. color to them but i understand how you know if you're just looking at one and glanced at one you might say well it's tall and very light you know so I would think these are probably the same beings that you call tall whites, um, but also descriptions in that information of yeah, great like more typical greys um, of reptilian type beings, and also of crystalline beings housed in a robotic shell that they because they can't walk around in crystalline beings, but entities that are part of a collective or crystal consciousness. Um, and then in sort of interdimensional beings that are kind of half in our world, half out of it, that, you know, you see them in a physical form, but if you see them psychically, that you would see that they don't look like that at all, that they are manifesting an appearance to you. So there's a description of a number of different kinds of beings that were involved in this intervention in our origins, that it's not a single type. And that in fact, you know, that there are multiple types. And that's quite interesting. So of course, in modern encounter law you know we do hear of all kinds of different beings i mean i do think though there's some um, there, there's an area where i hear on in this though where i think that we have to be wary because i mean if people feel with john keel's work you know the kind of journalist and voyager of all things extraordinary um that you know he realized that it seemed as though there was almost a craft and a monster for each of us um, then in all the accounts that you know you could find that there were so many different descriptions of beings 
and crafts that although they looked similar, they would have something you know different about them, whether they were disc, but they were disc with three legs or a disc with wings on the side, or it has a dome, or you know, that he found that there were so many of these that it didn't seem plausible that all of these represent real physical crafts, or there's something about how they we perceive those crafts and that there's some kind of interaction with our consciousness and what we're seeing that we have to be wary that you know when we see all these beings are they really all different kinds of beings or are they projecting something to us that makes us see so this again i, I think we have to be aware because i know that we see so what, what are these beings you know who are all these different beings but the fact that you know he found so many extraordinary beings that it made him think that you know this doesn't really make sense that we have what thousands of different races visiting us you know? right um, that it started to look a bit too odd and that there seemed to be a psychical aspect to this in the same way that you know people who see ghosts Loch Ness monsters that there was an overlap with other phenomena so I think there are some different physical groups interacting with us personally I think that um, however I'm wary when we get into the sort of you know which which are they who are they which ones are real and what do we mean by real are we being seeing are we seeing what they really look like um, and also we have this strange phenomena that some people will say the greys are really friendly and the greys are really hostile uh, reptilians occasionally helpful to people most of the time scary right so there seems to be an inconsistency even in the experiences with these different types right so right. i just want people to keep that in mind that you know that we can sometimes see things a little bit too nuts and bolts and a little bit too wanting to, you know, round it off at the edges where it doesn't, where a lot of these blend in a way that makes it even more complex and mysterious. People are trying to make it like a black and white sort of yes or no answer is what you're trying to. Yeah. Don't think that we can. I don't think we can just easily say those are the good guys. Those are the bad guys. That's this guy. I don't even know if we're always even seeing what they look like. Right. Could we be standing in front of what we'd normally call a gray and see a tall white, you know, because it's projecting something to you. I mean, there's people that see monkeys in their bedrooms, right? Monkeys in the bedroom jumping around. Right. Right. I mean, that's the few, my wife had this when she was young. Um, people may know uh, Terry Lovelace's book. He talks about the monkeys in the bedroom. I mean, then he realizes they're not monkeys, that they're grays and things like that. So look, if, you, if you're dealing with beings that can project an image to you of how they look, then you really have very little idea what you're dealing with most of the time. So when we talk about these types of being, I just want people to keep that in mind that, you know, that the, the subterfuge may be on a scale that that really begs belief for us as beings that are just used to, you know, if I see it, it's real kind of thing, you know, which um, I think that we go into an area where it's more difficult, but certainly the account that I'm, I based my research on, it does specify that there are multiple different types that are collaborating, but they come from different star systems and have come here on a craft together in a collaborative mission. Um, and so that there are a number of different types involved. I don't know the right. full number of those, but there's a descriptions of several kinds. Right. Is there a, um, in your personal opinion, is there a particular instance, a particular species, a particular event, anything that really has struck out to you the most that just can't really leave your head? You know, it's those events where you kind of recall them while you were writing the book or doing the research for it. And you're like, shit, like, you know, even though the, the book is completed, everything is great. I still can't get this out of my head. Is there any particular instance that that kind of really stuck with you of any well, kind? I mean 
Well, one of the things I mean that really made me interested in this project in the first place was a personal event I had when um, back in about 2002, and I took a, a shamanic journey. And in this journey, there was a couple of different things that happened, but there was a, a brief period where I found myself experiencing being a non-human being, that I was an, a humanoid extraterrestrial on a ship, um, tall, you know, in a blue suit, a blue kind of type suit, fly through space towards Earth, with aware that there was some sort of pursuit and aware there'd been some kind of catastrophe. You know, a lot of allies had been destroyed in space, right? And there was a very intense kind of direct experience of that, right? It was very, fairly brief, you know, it wasn't right. a long narrative. Um, but then, you know, when I, I encountered this book, you know, about this supposed visitation mm -hmm. and intervention, you know, there was stuff that stuck out to me in that because it was like, well, hang on, you know, they're describing beings in blue outfits on this mothership that's destroyed in space. Survivors come down to earth in smaller ships and to pursue, you know, so of course that clicked, you know, I was like, hang on a minute, that's, that's like the other part of this story that I was shown in this shamanic journey, you know, over a decade before, you know, that I just had no reference point for that experience at the time. So it was just filed under you know, weird experience. Right. Who knows, you know, what that's about or why you've had that experience. Um, but that definitely stuck out. So with this work, it was like, aha, uh -huh, you know, that's super weird that that seems to actually mesh with that bizarre, you know, visionary experience I've had many, many years before. Um, right. one, is, was one of the things that really intrigued me with this, with the account in the book, you know, the fact that it was describing this intervention with these kind of beings, these tall beings and in their blue outfits. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that stuck out, you know, we, about as weird as you can get in terms of, um, you know, a prod to be interested in someone's account. You know, the fact that you could relate it to something that you'd had as an experience that was super strange. Interesting how that seemed to have navigated a lot of, you know, what came for, for yourself down the road with regards to what you've written about and, and things like that. Um, I would like to know all, on behalf of my audience, because a lot of my audience, they like to do their own um, independent uh, citizen journalism, if you will, or their own investigations. Is there any type of advice you would give to those that are don't have as many resources maybe as you might have, or just in the case of uh, trying to figure out the, uh, you know, trying to visit certain uh, geographical sites or archaeological digs to try to figure out the the origin of, of I guess we could say humanity, if you will, because uh, one of the questions I get posed with a lot on my live streams and things like that is, you know, Dave, what do you think about this from a thousand years ago, 2000, 200,000 years ago? And my answer is always, first off, I don't know enough about it to comment on it. And secondly, I wouldn't know where to start. But an expert such as yourself, would you have any advice for someone looking or what process they should do to try to make sure they don't record disinformation down instead of the, you know, hopefully the right direction? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, first off, is you start off with deciding for yourself, are you looking just for a story that you like and that you want to be the story for you about how humans came about in the past? Because a lot of people believe stories for which they have no basis, right? And right. I, I don't know if I, I can really sit in judgment and tell them they shouldn't have that if they're happy with it. But, I mean, if you're really setting out to filter out what seems to be more based in reality and on things you know factual evidence and try and get closer to what you you know what genuinely happened in the past you know and again i really say people have to think about because most people aren't trying to do that right you know I mean? trying to reinforce a story that they're attracted to right 
Um, so many example, people tell me, you know, humans came from Mars and uh, right. they were, it was a war on Mars and we came here. And I have people tell me things like that. And I think, but like all the evidence goes against that. So, and they usually have no evidence to give me. It's a story that they like, right? So and there's no, there's always no point in even engaging with that because they're not, most of my people are not willing to bring any evidence to that. They just want to tell you, by the way, Bruce, you're wrong. We came from Mars and they have this whole story, right? If you look at the genetic data, we're very clearly related to the other animals on this planet, right? Right. Very clearly related to all the animals on this planet. We very clearly trace back to the DNA and bones from old hominins. So it's like, you know, all the evidence stacked against them, but they're not really interested. So, I mean, you have to set out first, are you interested in the evidence? Are you looking to actually filter out garbage or to reinforce a preferred narrative? Because if you're doing that, then I don't have advice. To so, so right right so in your right. research and experience would you say that at least a, a percentage of some of the public um you know academic knowledge if you will that is being pushed with regards to human evolution is accurate yeah absolutely i think it's vital as well i think that you know they got right. most of the people that go into those fields are in them because they are passionate about them and they're interested in them and they they want to be able to understand you know how the genome works and they want to be able to you know, make a name for yourself, refining some connection or whatever, you know, and they are, I guess you say, fellow geeks that have an interest in that stuff. And we can't just wipe off and say that it's all a giant conspiracy, that all of science, all of anthropology, you know, that it's all a giant conspiracy. That's not true. The real problem comes down to not, not the evidence that people find, because on the whole, the geologists, the chemists, the geneticists, they're not just sitting there making stuff up, right? they, they are doing their jobs. But then when you get that evidence, you, you're making a story from it. So you interpret the evidence. And, and that's where things start to get really messy is that, you know, then you have humans deciding a narrative from the evidence about humans, about our story in the past. So that there's a definitely a bias and there's definitely some leaps, you know, and sometimes those leaps, you know, are self-interested or whatever. But the actual evidence usually is really good. And I use academic evidence. So, I mean, I would say to people, you're serious about it learn to read academic papers because you're not really going to you're not going to find out by just going on alternative theorist youtube channels and having them tell you that's how it happened i mean because where are they getting that evidence from and there's so much garbage out there i mean if you look at things like uparts you know out of place object most of those are easily explained if you take the time to look at them like you know we have uh, hammers in stone but they're just in concretions. You know, if you if you leave something in water where there's eroding limestone, for example, that you will get limestone buildup onto the object in the water and you'll end up in a block of rock. Right? And there's, there's quite a few of those kind of concretions. Like, well, it's been in the rock for millions of years. And it's like, well, it obviously hasn't. It's a modern hammer that is right. just in a concretion because we understand that. And if you talk to a geologist, they, they can very easily explain away a lot of these things. But then people don't want to let go because they... They fill up an exciting story right, around right. certain objects. But most of these things are easily debunked, like really easily debunked. I don't think that at this point, in terms of, say, like ooh parts, there's only one or two that I think are still a bit intriguing. You've got some these little tiny micro spirals from Russia that yes. apparently maybe really old, right? Um, but then nobody seems to have to find any more information on them or to any of them to study. So again, it's like dead end in a way. Um, and then you, you know, most of them, yeah, I think about there's very few of those things that stand up. But then if you were to engage people, they don't like you to say that. You know, the footprints in stone, for example. And again, the you find that the um the people that did the investigation of these alleged footprints of stone are 
Christian scientists with these, what I would call bogus Christian university degrees in archaeology, have no idea what they're doing, just trying to reinforce a narrative about their own belief systems, who've come out with these stuff about these footprints and stone and how it, it doesn't fit with the, you know, the yeah. because they're at war with they're they're being funded there are in a way they're being we can argue they're being funded right to contradict a lot of yeah yeah so right. I mean, again, you have to look at who are the people when someone says i'm dr so you might want to look at where they got that doctorate from and stuff right? Especially and who's saying, and who's funding them who's funding them you know do they have a clear bias you know people should look for clear bias in people you know what what's their religious leanings you know right. <laughs> you know if there's something in there that you know and try to assess some of that bias as well and look carefully you know people's studies they've done and and also peer review is the you know, the only thing but look if they have got a paper or the evidence of the photos of the diary look for where they're getting that argument from and you know particularly i'd say you know again you know, look at academic papers and there's um sci-hub is a great resource sci-hub is a russian um, website which allows you to read academic papers for free because a lot of them are expensive. I, I couldn't afford to be reading more. So I mean, you know, if you use SciHub and they sort of change the end at the moment, it, it's SideHub. It's called. Yeah, okay. Sci um, hyphen Hub. Um, I think it's .tw at the moment, but they they change it because it gets blocked. And they have to change the end part, you know, because it's right. It's frowned upon because obviously they're allowing you into. And what would be paid for academic studies it allows you free access but i use that a lot because you know i go through academic papers and i will you know looking for, obviously looking for a subject and first of all you're googling or whatever or duck, duck, go, whatever right <laughs> look for um you know the paper's name looking for the topic you know i will look up you know genetics of neanderthals you know you look that up and you'll find the paper's names and you'll often find you can't access those papers but if you take either the name or the what's called the the DI, uh, DOI, which is a code which it has on it, you can take that and put it into SciHub, and that will open the paper for you. And then essentially just look through the initial parts. You've got the, you know, the introduction, and you know if it seems relevant, you can pretty much kind of skip down to the conclusions because obviously a lot of these papers are very long, right? Skip right. conclusions. If conclusions is really telling you about the topic that you know you want to know, and it's telling you something good, you know, right. you want to know. And if so, then you can sort of go back and read the paper. Because I'm not saying sit around read hundreds of long papers. I, I realize people don't really have time, but you can skim first, introduction included. And if a paper then it looks like, hey, well, this sounds really exciting, then you can look and see how they did the work. Um, that's what I do a lot of time. You know, I'm looking to see the information I use is mostly from academic studies and stuff. Because, you know, where else really are you going to get? Unless you, you're a field researcher and go out and archaeology right was there ever so please forgive me if i'm misunderstanding you but from what i'm understanding is that it's not so, what you're what you're saying is that it's not so much that the academic institutions have been blatantly lying to us about the entire origin of humanity however they have left out very significant gaps if you will it seems as though well yeah i mean when you put it together i mean look an individual paper might just be you know uh, how old is the Neanderthal family a cave somewhere, you know, and what's mm. the gene find the genome, you know, but then you start put together all these different papers off and put you then you have a, a a theory of the story, you know, how did humans migrate? There, there, there's sorry, there's consistency there is what you're saying. Like so in usually in an individual paper, right, you'll have just that study and its findings. And so most of the time, and again, that doesn't mean there's not errors in those papers, and you obviously should look for those because sometimes right. you do find consistencies, but 
on the whole, it's not the direct analysis that's at fault. Like, so, you know, the dating on the body or the genetic information that's extracted or, you know, how old is the artifact? So usually that information is pretty reliable. Well, it's going to be as reliable as it, they can do it, right? It's not, I don't think there's a conspiracy to just give us all distorted information. I think that when you get to, when it's put together into a story, the human story, that then you're interpreting information. So, I mean, to give you an example, I mean, we have an interpretation of recent of Africa that modern humans, because we find the genetics of modern Eurasian people, right, traces back to what's called the, um, what, L3, uh, haplogroup L, well, they, they think it traces back to, haplogroup M and N, which is closely related to L3, and L3 is considered an African um, haplotype, so they consider that M and N are close relatives and must have come out of L3, making an East African kind of origin, and that therefore this supports an idea that we came out of East Africa and migrated into Eurasia. Okay, but that's an interpretation. Okay, mm. Another interpretation of that is that L3 comes out of M and N and out of, you know, another a group, a grouping, a proto-group that goes above L, free M and N that existed in Eurasia and that people went into Africa. So you mean what I'm saying is you can take the same base information that's in those studies, which is legitimate information, and weave a different story around it. And that's where the problem is when you start weaving the stories is that, you know, and then in those, that's where you have to look for the flaws. Because I mean, like, for example, in that, that narrative, I can see that we had um, in early humans, you, you find that the, these early East Africans who are allegedly, you know, are an, the ancestors of Eurasian people, you find that there are these divergent male and female um, lineages that appear right. in Africa around about 70,000 years ago. Now, but the thing is that the mutation rate on the male and female line, right, is, is different in terms of when you get into the, um, the, the actual genetics, right? That basically the mutation rate on the male line is different by a factor of 10. So you Whoa. would not expect to find two new mutations, you know, a mutation on each, on the female and male line appearing at the same moment in the same place, in the same small population. The much more reasonable interpretation of that is somebody has walked in there from somewhere else, yes. carrying those genetics. Now, so the, this is why I say that you have to look for these inconsistencies where they've interpreted something wrong, because if you look at that, you say, well, hang on a minute, that's an unreasonable interpretation of the data. It's not that the data is wrong. The data is telling you there's new haplogroups there. But if you interpret that as a mutation instead of an incursion, then right. you get an entirely different story. Or That's an interjection, by... yeah. So now you're weaving a tale from the evidence because it, like also a misunderstanding of what the data is really telling you. Now, is it a misunderstanding or is someone deliberately doing that? I mean, that's when you get into, it's difficult to assess, isn't it? You know, right. to say, are they definitely conspiring to delude you? They could be, or is it an error? You know, it's very difficult to say. So I suppose most of the time you can default to it's an error probably, yeah. Um, in other cases, you know, there are obviously instances where it seems unreasonable for someone to have interpreted something in the way they have. Like, for example, I mean, we have the, I touched on earlier, this, the McIntyre case in Mexico, where, you know, the geologists um, and the archaeologists <laughs> all concluded that the site that they're working on 
was super, super old, like, you know, at least 100,000 years old, maybe 200, some of them thought even older than that. Um, right. And that it didn't fit the popular narrative. And those people, most of them had their careers ruined, right? They were dismissed as total garbage. But even though the geologists were saying, but look, you know, these are sound, even like all the principles of geology in terms of how we date strata and date. And they just get in the pub. I was just going to ask you, sorry, I was just going to ask you very quickly. How often do these get thrown out or ridiculed in the public academia community? And it sounds like quite often. Well, I suppose I fairly, I think it's when you hear against what well, I'd say a paradigm in science where there's like there's the par- human origins paradigm in which we are told humans uh, arose in Africa, right? And that they then might, as you say, migrate out. We now accept there may have been an early migration 120,000 years ago, it's supposed to have failed. And then there's another one around 70,000 years ago. So that's a, that's a paradigm. Now within it, there's all sorts of other stuff, theories about what Neanderthals ate and, you know, and where Denisovans, you know, there's all sorts of subtopics, but the greater paradigm it's in is the African origin and recent out of Africa. So when, when you touch on really, and again, like with America, the, that the origins of, Americans was the Clovis people 13,000 years ago. That was a paradigm. And so whenever someone hit against that, that's when the suppression really clamps down. It's not that you found a bone that was really unusual. It's, it's when you say, hey, this whole dating's wrong. You know, but look, my God, the whole system I'm working within is wrong. We need to change it. But suddenly those um, most influential people in those fields typically are like, no, no, you know, you're not, you're not, derailing this and you know my established name yeah. of being expert on this field and then you find that that's when we have the problem of human nature clicking in self-interest ego. yeah ego. Do, do you, yeah, you know, i built my life's work on that you're not going right. to come along Without, right right sorry i just wanted to ask you very quickly do you simply based on your experience over the years of reading papers things like that uh two questions one of them uh do you, have you ever read a paper dissertation or anything like this where you said, okay, this is total nonsense? Uh, first and foremost, where you said, okay, like this is just, you know, this and that. And, and number two, have you ever looked at any of the individuals suppressing some of these proposals and said, okay, I have a feeling they know something. And if they don't, they're just told no matter what, suppress this type of theory always. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, there's, I mean, there's papers that have gone through peer reviews that are nonsense. I mean, that's the people have looked that up. And so there are people that have deliberately have put through nonsense papers to test the peer review process. And in some cases, things have gone through that were totally designed to be obviously absurd. And those right. have gone through. So so we definitely have to say that, you know, that the peer review process is not infallible. I mean, we know that in recent um times with the whole the pandemic but there was the initial paper that went through on how to identify the virus a lot of science have sorry how do how do i identify sorry you cut out there it was how to identify the the protocol for identifying the virus gotcha but then the paper that was put through for that was peer-reviewed in like two days or something and a lot of the academics have pointed out that that's absurd but you know usually you've got find people that are experts to review it you've got to make arrangements to do that you know you got it submitted drafts are revised then it just it doesn't add up that you could go through so then you look then you have to think there's corruption or something's not right in, in some of these processes where you'd say well there's just no way in two days that that paper got reviewed and passed and so we know that stuff happens and again let's say other times where deliberately absurd things have been put through so yes i mean those papers exist and there's a lot of flawed papers that get through review process that other scientists will highlight and say, look at this, you know, look at parts of this paper that are just 
crazy. So we, we shouldn't assume by any means that, you know, that just because it's the gold standard means it's all gold, right? There's a lot right. of food through <laughs> gold standard. Right? right. So, I mean, again, critical thinking has to be employed as you go through. I mean, it obviously takes some level of specialized knowledge in a field to be able to notice some of the flaws, right? I mean, you're probably... Right. You have a, a particular interest, you know, if your interest is, I don't know, fossils of the Paleolithic period, and you read a lot of papers and books on that, then you're obviously, you're much more likely to notice an absurdity in someone's paper than the first time you go and read an academic study, right? So, I mean, it's like with anything that the more uh, knowledgeable you are in it, the more you're going to notice when someone is kind of like bluffing it and has managed to get, you know, some nonsense through. Because at the end of it, there's no absolute truth standard right where you can say you know right Darren, you, 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 obviously some stuff is far more objective than others so if you're looking at a study and like for example like i really like um people i trust the most in human origins research are geologists chemists geneticists right not anthropologists and archaeologists because on the one side you have people just doing hard science there's a guy in his lab he's trying to work out you know, what is the um, the chemical constituents of this particular object, you know, or stone, right? And that's right. what he's doing. Not trying to sell you a story, right? He's just doing a chemical experiment on some stone or some artifact, and then he's, he's going to tell you what it's made of and the age dating based on the understanding we have with thermoluminescence or with, you know, whatever it is. And that's all he's doing. So you can see that he has almost no input in terms of the result in that he's just going to write up the results of the experiment and so to those people, right? right that's typical for an anthropologist because the anthropologist is going to tell you a story about the, uh, the artifact right that how right. they believe into the context of the human story and how it relates to other things right so sorry oh no problem so they, they are going to um weave a tail around it and that's why i say you know i'm much more trusting of the hard scientists you know in this because on the whole all they're doing is just results of an experiment published in a paper you know but would you sorry would you and i ask this respectfully would you trust a scientist just to play devil's advocate would you trust a scientist that's doing the hard science even if the funding seems a little bit you know to be in favor of a particular narrative or do you look at all those aspects before you 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 say okay like you know this this could be something or maybe not well i mean that's it's difficult isn't it because you know i think you have to go on just on what they're doing in their study i mean yeah i'm not going to say it doesn't influence you if you hear obviously you hear that they have that but on the whole i wouldn't be looking each time to see you know they have to declare some interest normally on the page right. you have to declare an interest so if they have funding from an organization that relates they do usually have to declare that so i mean so people can look and see you know what was their bias you know is there a potential bias because you know hey look they're funded totally by so and so institute and that institute is working on this so i mean that's there for people to see but i think you know for the, for the majority of the time what you're looking for is the actual study is you know makes sense and it's been done right and, uh, and you're not seeing it somewhere they can obviously cheat it i mean that's imperfect but Again, we're just working with the best evidence we can get. It doesn't mean it's the perfect evidence or that it's necessarily fully conclusive, right? Because it's like we only have what we have. And like particularly the human origin story, it's very fragmented. We don't have, you know, hardly anything. I mean, it's probably, you can put probably all the bones of the ancient hominins 
you know, into the back of like someone's transit van. You know what I mean? There's not like that we found a massive amount of evidence, right? Because all this stuff has just dissolved away into the soil. You know, there's a very limited number of ancient fossils. There's right. a very limited amount of, you know, physical archaeology of objects. So, I mean, we have to keep in mind that, you know, you're dealing with a jigsaw puzzle where you'll never have all the pieces. You know, it's like a thousand piece puzzle where you've got maybe, you know, a hundred of the pieces and you're trying to put them where you think they were and then trying to fill in the rest of that picture by drawing it in around it, right? Right. So you're never going, like in a topic like human origins, you're never going to have, at least from the scientific investigation side, you're never going to have that complete picture and you're never going to have it completely right. Just never. Because that evidence well, is destroyed, right? Right, so right. You're coming to a best conclusion you can. Now that's different, say, in physics where you could have a complete model for some phenomena that you study in the lab right you say okay well we know how it works now we know what the energy is of it and we know how fast it moves you know obviously you can have a complete study but when it's the stuff that you know we're talking about with human origins or even with an intervention you know this stuff is so long ago that we are never going to get a complete picture and we are relying on fragmentary evidence and in some cases as we've talked about some biased evidence and some level of of conspiring in terms of protecting people's names work etc and then beyond that you know media bias on topics and obviously the owners of the media companies their biases about that story how right it and on top of that then beyond that you know the potential for bias at higher levels of people you know that are in the upper echelons or whatever you want to call them, what i call the predatory parasitic world controllers the people that are you know super powerful influencers that can direct funding on projects that can influence government's decisions you know that, that if there's something that is found or you know that could be problematic to the hierarchical control of the planet i mean that is likely to be suppressed you know and a paper is likely to end up not going through a peer review somewhere you know there's obviously there's people that can influence stuff you know particularly right. They are funding it, you know, their foundation funds the work. And someone didn't like it. I mean, we have to be realistic and say that can that happen? Yeah, sure, that can happen. And then but even below that, just the the self-interest, you know, amongst some academics and their biases, that's gonna also look a bit like a conspiracy because you know they are yeah. in a way conspiring yeah. to stop you seeing something, right? So I though it may not be yes. Sorry, no, I was just going to say that that takes me to my next question, which you honestly, if I had let you keep going, you probably would have answered it for me. But I just just for the for the audience. Um, so with regards to without sounding too conspiratorial, I guess it's two questions in one um, I wanted to ask. Do you think there is a, a an overall suppression complex with regards to certain I guess we could say peers within the academic community, not that they not not trying to sound like, oh, they, they, they know the secrets or this or that. But do you think some of them at the most influential level are told, you know, uh, this once something crosses a certain metaphorical line, it cannot be crossed. And you must make sure that you and your peers are influenced to turn it down. And I guess that leads into my question of the star child, uh, that whole thing there. Would that be an instance of that? I mean, I suspect that there will be some key people. I think the same in, in journalism in general, that you'd have, that we know that there's you know, Operation Mockingbird, the idea that there's, you know, CIA agents in... But sorry, you know, would you say it's more in the journalistic side or the scientific peer review side? I, again, I would compare the two. I would say that if we have that in the media, then we should be sort of realistic and say there's quite likely to be people planted in the sciences that also keep a bit of an eye on where certain lines of science research are going right whether physics 
um, whether human origins, certain areas that would impact society at large, right? So if, if we can imagine a control system that's permeated our media, I think we'd be naive to not suspect that there was some level of that in the sciences as well, because it's not just the media that influences, right? And that's obviously the scientific discoveries influence us as well. So I, I can't see that we'd only have intelligence manipulation in the media, but not in the cutting edges of science, right? So though we right. probably can prove who people were, that you know you can definitely see there are influential people in you know the upper echelons of any field who could potentially be compromised and could use their positions to suppress people's work. Because if you talk to some scientists, they a lot of time they will say, look, you know, so-and-so, senior person in our field, is kind of nuts, doesn't like doing this. He was throwing his people telling them they can't publish that and you can only publish it with my name on it. And you find out there's a lot of problematic people in these fields who are controlling narratives. That's not conspiracy, but you know, even the scientists who work with them, you know, in some cases have called out people that do it. Now it might be just that the person's a problematic person, or it could be that in some cases these people are compromised, are you know being paid off by someone to derail the research of other people, right? So the potential is definitely there. Proving it would be super hard. Yeah, do right. I suspect it happens? Yeah, I definitely suspect it happens. There's people that I think of as that I think could be doing that. that I, there's definitely people I think who understand, say, aspects of my work who I've communicated with. I mean, I've had like leading um, scientists in the field like they've said, "Oh yes, I know your book," and, and you feel like. Right. If you oh, know my book, so the, okay, yeah, yeah. If you know my book. So then, in other words, you all know about it, but not one of them talks about it. Not one of them has said, you know, we need to tackle, you know, that his argument against research. So what you have instead is this wall of silence. So it's not that people aren't aware of it. So I find that's quite funny because then the, shouldn't the silence you, tell you metaphorically? Sorry, but shouldn't the science make all the the noise? Uh, shouldn't that the silence? Excuse me, tell you everything right there. Well, it definitely shows, you know, there's not a willingness to tackle these controversial topics. I mean, not unless it's very easily done. Like, I think, right. you know, if you have someone has a really an absurd theory, right? Right. You, know, you, can, you can easily just come out and say, oh, you know, there's nothing to that, you know, and you can dismiss it in two minutes. Then, yeah, you'll see some focus on that. But I think when it becomes difficult for them to address without drawing more attention to the theory, right, then... The, the next the, the thing to do instead is silence because if, if you don't engage with it it would die a death of silence right rather than them having to actually disprove anything so yeah i think that's another technique that we see um unfortunately so yeah that, that all happens it's you know it's real phenomena i mean again people can don't take my word for it i'm sure people ask scientists in these films say you know they ever had problems with senior people that you know don't like certain papers going through or panel review panels that won't tackle controversial findings i'm sure that they'll find that that's confirmed it's not I, I find that quite interesting that people that the scientists with respected ones in the community say if you reach out to them so you, you know they say oh i know your work i find that interesting it's like the uh the the elephant in the room if you will but nobody wants to seem to touch it even though it seems like if they did and they really had the ability the chance to freely free, like truly not be restrained you your uh, theories and and research might actually be onto something far more accurate than well yeah and you've got to think as well in these topics there are a number of quite well if people are in the into the ancient mysteries and human origins topic there's some quite well-known debunkers um some of them are scientists some of them aren't that write debunking blogs and stuff about ancient history ancient aliens all that sort of and um 
none of them ever wrote anything about my forgotten origins book like none of them and it's not they don't know the work it's not the, so you think well if it's so crazy surely you know you can debunk it in a couple of blog posts you know yeah. but, yeah, it's not that they don't know and i reached out to a couple of them to see if they want to review it right so also you said my work from people so you've even proposed to them listen debunk this or try to or something like that yeah i've offered them copies of the book and what have they said they've just not answered or they've they've replied and said no you would no just basically go quiet just don't hear any more from them also a journalist i've reached out to that initially said they're interested and then you never hear from them again once they i should go to their editor to ask if you know, can we cover this or whatever? And I just never hear from them again. Not even a, no, we can't do it. Just silence. Now, just, just now your work, if I'm not mistaken, has also been featured in the Telegraph and Daily Mail, correct? That is for a expedition into the jungles, though, rather than like, a you know, work I've written up. So obviously that just has that appeal of some people in a jungle, pictures of an ancient site. So that, that has been in the press, but not the research findings. I was going to say, I, I, I would be quite surprised if the Telegraph or the Daily Mail were to, I mean, the Daily Mail does take, they seem to take some journalistic chances sometimes, but they still don't seem to stray too far off from the, the, the metaphorical line, if you will. But the, uh, the last five, 10 minutes before we wrap this up, my audience would really like to know, I'm sure, um, your perspective on disclosure. I mean, you've been tweeting in the, the past 48 hours about how you believe personally that, uh, I'm not sure how seriously you take yourself when you tweet. I, I think all of us kind of, you know, joke around a bit, but are you tweeted something, if I'm not mistaken, about how you feel, though, as though this insertion into the mainstream media is a, a distraction of sorts. Do you feel that to be the case or? Yeah, I mean, I think in the last year, particularly, we've just seen how controlled the media is. I just find it uh, so improbable that at this point, you know, they would be putting front and center a narrative that was going to destabilize the paradigm i think that you know if we look at that we look at the way that media has been controlled around a number of mega issues you know obviously lockdowns and all that stuff that we've seen this uh, uh, total control over narratives i just find it it's not believable that we're going to get a, a genuine anomalous phenomena front and center in that media something that could offer a threat to the narrative and um there's a guy and i would recommend people to look up alexander wentz um articles on this where he talks about the anthropocentric model and the hierarchy and basically how you know that if we were to have say aliens or something alien you know international right. whatever you want right that's out there that was connecting with the earth or is nearby that that is something that is potentially above the hierarchy that is you know it's people would look to and say well that's the most powerful thing in our solar system right not the parasitical world controllers the people that are shaping our world but there's something beyond them that is more powerful so there's no benefit to those types of people to introduce that chaotic influence of something above them right you so you so think this is fear-mongering well i think it's um it's a psychological operation of some sort. Now it could be used for fear, it could be used to even to make feel people feel happier and that, you know, we're part of some cosmic reality. I mean, they can take it whichever way they want with it. I mean, because the thing is, I think that if you can create, can create your own nice, safe UFOs, your own version of this, mm. bring it into the culture, you could take that narrative whichever way you want. Because if you're writing the story, you know, you're creating that narrative, you can take that UFO story whichever direction you want. Now, if you to bring in the truly anomalous objects, 
which are chaotic, you know, and seem to be associated with all sorts of strangeness. Yeah. That introducing that into your nicely ordered hierarchical system is a huge problem. Because <laughs> right. I mean, if you look at the accounts, right, we've got um, sources that land and people go on board and there's people cooking pancakes. And then, you know, there's other cases, you know, where giant robots are coming out and jumping around and, you know, just really super weird stuff that it doesn't even fit with the narrative. Sorry, there's even... literally cases of people seen cooking pancakes on UFOs. Is, yeah there's a famous case of somebody they went on they were given pancakes um and the, the the beings asked for a glass of water in return which they gave them uh, the pancakes were later tested they were found to be pancakes but that they lacked sodium they had no sodium in them and they said that that's basically impossible so that everything in our food chain you know has yeah. some level of sodium in it they and it had it nothing shortly. None, zero. And they said that that was extraordinary in itself because you'd say otherwise they were just ordinary pancakes. But it said that the weird thing was that they had zero sodium in them. And they said that they just couldn't see how you could have made pancakes with no sodium. So again, you have to say that huh. strange. I mean, the way, you know, how does that make sense? So aliens come here, cook some pancakes for a guy and get a glass of water and fly away. I mean, how does that fit with a story of visitors, you know, explorers from the beyond? You know, it doesn't. Right. And then we have these other cases where, of course, where people are saying they're taken aboard and they're shown how to fly the craft or they're flying into underground bases. And I mean, so if you open up the Pandora's box of really tackling anomalous phenomena, that is a really destabilizing story that to try and bring that into our nicely ordered hierarchy. Right. I don't see that you can. I just don't see you can. So if you look at the nicely sculpted version that we are getting in the media, this it could be aliens from the beyond maybe it's not but it could be and if it is they're probably star travelers coming to see it. and it's like but if you look at the phenomena itself and the accounts over the last well centuries but even so over the last 70 years the, the accounts are far more extraordinary and don't point to something as simple as you know scientists from the great beyond have come to explore earth it just does not support any of that and the same idea is the threat i mean yes you could say is it a threat well i mean Almost anything can be a threat. I mean, I open my door and I walk, I walk out in the morning. I don't know, you know, in the lottery of life, what horror might happen right. to me, right? Because there's loads of stuff that's threatening in your day, you know, that potentially is a threat to you. Sure, right? yeah. Uh, so, I mean, of course we could say, yeah, weird things in the sky. Could they be a threat? Yeah, maybe, you know. Um, but that's that's a narrative and they're adding on something. Could it also be good for people? Because we have all these stories of UFO experience where people say they were healed, right? Right, Graded. They found them more intelligent after seeing you. And then we have other ones where people got cancer or, um, you know, mental illness and stuff. So, I mean, it's such a chaotic um, wild card topic. That I don't really see how you could take that genuine research, that genuine vast body of high strangeness and just put that front and center into the kind of media we have, which says, you know how we've got everything nicely ordered and, you know, things work like this and science is like that. Well, now here is this. And this is just whack-a-doodle-doo. And we're going to right. put on the CNN and Fox. And you're going to hear about pancakes from Mars. get <laughs> taken to Venus on spaceships. And, you know, it's a struggle. That is not what they're putting. Is there, is there very quickly, for the last few minutes, uh, what, what are your thoughts on the possibility that the certain species or races, again, completely unsubstantiated, but are, are telling the, I guess you could say humans, if you will, that this disclosure needs to happen, that it's, we can argue humans um, or our governments, if you will, don't necessarily want this to happen, but they don't have a choice. I mean, it sounds like something out of a movie, but I mean, at this point, a lot of things do that have ended up becoming 
you know, substantiated. So what do you think about that, that reversal, if you will, because maybe you're, I, I believe you to be correct. The human hierarchy shouldn't have this insertion all of a sudden, unless there's a reason. Do you think maybe aliens are a certain faction of them are saying, okay, you got no choice this time. You got to do this. Well, I think that there's, there's certain invested interest as humans that are weaving this into the, into the greater narrative of the great reset that we're in and that for their own convenient reasons, a part of this UFO story seems to be useful to them, that they're able to find a use for it. Now, that might be to unify people around the idea of we're not alone in the cosmos, we're all one species, we're humans, and that there's others out there. And, you know, let's think of ourselves in a more globalist term, because, I mean, we're dealing with globalist people. Right. right? to make a new world order a global order so i mean something that helps unify us as an us and them as a global us and uh, something other than could be a very useful tool in reshaping us into a new world order right so i think that would be something where i would look at this as being a most obvious reason why they're bringing in part of this ufo story but at the same time as i say it's a very carefully crafted selection out of the greater body of you know, let's say UFO or anomalous phenomena research, right? It's right. a very small piece that you can fit in fairly comfortably. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't make people think, oh my God, maybe there's aliens, which it does, but you can kind of comfortably fit that in, especially when you realize that, was it um, something like uh, 40% of people already believe aliens have visited Earth? So yeah. it's not that extraordinary to put in that some UFOs are maybe a craft and maybe, I don't, because if you think, well, 40% already accept it. And probably something like 80% or more of, the, of humanity are religious and believe in non-human intelligences, angels, jinns. Right. So again, these aren't concepts that are as revolutionary as people might think. You know, there'll be some people that struggle, but most people can fit in anomalous phenomena of some sort, right? But it's how much of it and how crafted. I think this is crafted in a way where we will be able to accept it. It'd be a bit like, a, wow, yes, you know, something extraordinary. But I don't think it's going to be destabilizing in the same way as we said, well, you know, there's these light orbs that turn into helicopters and that they come down and there's people in their bedrooms getting upgraded by aliens. I mean, look, I just don't see that. that look, I mean, the fact that they're not putting that in, they could have straight away said, well, we could already have gone from UFOs are real to abductions. Um, DNA upgrades, greys taking people onto ship, you know, all these right. things that are reported because we've not really been given any more evidence for alien spaceships in this story than we have for any of those other things. We're just getting people's claims, right? Right. Military and stuff saying that they've seen stuff that makes them believe there's others here, right? But what's the difference to that to all the, the thousands of police and pilots and soldiers and everyone's already told us that they've yeah. seen stuff them believe this right but we just we're getting it in the mainstream news but it's not that we're getting really new good evidence right it's not just really. that you know big brother is telling us now so all of a yeah, sudden no, yeah okay and it could be on the mainstream it doesn't have to have the x-files music played when they put it on <laughs> yeah so take away that the, the green screen of an alien standing there laughing or you know they're just cleaning up the edifice a little bit but they're not really giving you evidence, new evidence that you couldn't like, you know, found equivalent to by just Googling or going on like above top secret or something and looking at old forum files and you'd find all of this stuff and more, right? There's nothing particularly new about any of it. It's just being packaged for us. a certain percentage of information being packaged for us in a, in a very clean, um, comprehensible way, which doesn't really destabilize people particularly. It just makes them accept the idea that, our civilization is more ready to talk about these things 
in an open way than in a hushed right. way between friends, which has been traditional. So that's the major flip is to say, well, now it's okay to speak out loud, not whisper to your friends about it. You know, so the actual change in people talking about it is not that big because people were already talking about these things. And we already had 40% or so people believing aliens have visited us. So that's not a really a fringe thing because if 40% of the population believe something, that's not fringe. That's a massive, well accepted. Yeah. Inclusion, okay? So right. we've got to look at it from that perspective. And people say, you know, we need to get everyone to believe this. Well, but 40% of people already do. That's really <laughs> massive. That's massive. That's I mean, we can't even, you know, we can't get 50% of people, you know, usually any subject probably has at best 50-50 splits in it, right? Right. Like if you look across anything, you know. So I don't think, you know, it's rare to get everyone agreeing on anything. If you've got 40% of people agreeing on something that strange, I'd say it's well into the culture already, the idea that we've had visits and that there's things flying around in our skies. So we're just, we are getting a very specific palatable narrative sold to us that I think certainly has the advantage of helping formulate this great reset into a new world order of a new kind of human experience that's gonna be involving others that aren't human. So you look at the- Sorry, you look at the CNN and the BBC on, on these UFO reports, particularly the last the last two to three weeks going mainstream on on, you know, all the different uh, channels in the UK and North America. You see this as rubbish. You look at this and go bullshit or I would say that. Um, well, it's not that it's terrible. Bullshit. I just think it's, yeah, it's the, such the sanitized version of what actually people have been experiencing. You know, it's the sanitized version just to say, you know, that this is the bit of it that we allowed to incorporate into our culture. Right. But all the rest of it is being cut out of this conversation. There's no mention really at this point of, of abduction phenomena. You know, there's no real mention of, I say, them, the DNA changes that have been found in people that have had interactions with anomalous phenomena. There's a lot of stuff that there's, you know, evidence suggestive of that could have been part of this conversation. In the, in, you know, the CNN and BBC are not talking about right. any of that. So we're getting a very sanitized version. I don't think it's necessarily that it's total BS. Um, like with any good disinformation, you, you build it on a core of real stuff. You know, people really are seeing, the pilots really are seeing weird things fly around. Um, no particular reason to dismiss the pilot accounts that we've been given because they mesh with so many other pilot accounts. Yeah, right? yeah. It isn't new. So even if we were to say, oh, maybe some of these people have made it up, but you could still go and look into the archives and find so many pilots, both military and private that have seen these things that you'd still come away thinking well there's something strange flying around in our skies right not to so, mention the ones that were silenced as well too over the years yeah yeah i mean we have famous cases like the japanese airline when it really you know they saw something enormous flying alongside them i think in alaska and you know they were told when they landed basically to shut up and the files were taken by I think, the cia and so you know so you have these really like crazy cases in the history of this already. We know that there's something being suppressed. We know that there's things in the air. Um, so, I mean, you know, that is real. So I can't actually people it's all BS. I say, you know, we have a kernel of truth, but, but the narrative needs to be carefully looked at as why we're only getting this particular sanitized version. And the people should question that, particularly now that we're in the middle of what I call the Great Reset, which look, the, the World Economic Forum, the globalists are telling us we're in a Great Reset. They have a website, Great Reset. Right. Hiding it, right? So we're in the Great Reset. Funnily enough, in the midst of that, we suddenly have this UFO narrative being put front and center. So if this was happening at any other time, perhaps we could be less skeptical, right? But the fact is, we have to look at what's happening. We're in the middle of this massive social order reset where we're now being told, well, we might have to live forever with bizarre restrictions about 
how we interact with human beings and you know our economic order needs to be reset to be more um globally fair and all this stuff again i mean no it sounds on, on paper it's fine you have to be very careful with the kind of people that are leading that and you have people that are, have shown throughout their lives they're entirely selfish self-interested uh, magnates of industry so they're telling you now they're going to build a better world for you <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i mean and now and now that they seem to their media you know seem to be allowing a whole narrative of ufos and aliens in there i mean people have to question that we have to sit back and think why now you know why are they allowing it at all um you know does it connect with the reset and these other things that are happening you know, and that's why I'd say is that, yeah, to be careful, it's not that it's necessary or yes, but that you're getting a, a very select um, part of a bigger story that seems to fit nicely with this reset that we're in. Got you. Got you. Well, Bruce, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know that uh, the, the time is basically run out. I want to yeah. thank you so, so much. I'm a huge, huge fan of your work, as well as I'm sure much of my audience um, would love to have you on again uh, to discuss a, a different array of topics. But uh, thank you so much for coming on, sir. Is there anything you'd like to say where, where people could find you, where they could reach you, uh, certain things like that? Well, I mean, if people want to get a copy of the book, they can get on eBay. They can get either Exogenesis Hybrid Humans or the Forgotten Exodus on there. And I've signed copies that I'll send out. Or they can email me, bruce at brucefenton.info, request a copy. It is on Amazon. And you can also go into bookshops. You know, they probably won't be on the shelf, but you can go into any bookshop and request them to put a copy in you know, for you. Um, so yeah, I appreciate that. And otherwise on Twitter, exogenesis HH, which is the main social media I use. I don't really use Facebook and Instagram and stuff very much. I have accounts on them, but I don't do very much with them. So probably Twitter is best, but they can follow me on other social media if they prefer. Gotcha. Thank you so much, Bruce, for coming on. And we'll, uh, we'll chat again very soon, sir. Great. Take care. Thank you very Take much. Take care. Thank Cheers. you. Bye.